Amen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, worship team. It is great to see you all. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome you. Glad you're connecting with us this way. Uh, we are going to be in Romans chapter 3, uh, continuing in the What is the Gospel series. Um, so just a little kind of overview of where we're going. We're walking through the different uh, pieces of or elements of this truth that we call the gospel. We're taking um, a slow journey through the gospel um, to look at this, this good news that um, the church was founded upon um, over 2,000 years ago. And along the way, we've talked about how um, every generation has been tempted to deviate away from the real gospel, the true gospel, different reasons. I've mentioned a couple times already that um, for a lot of us, the, the, the good news is too good to be true, and so it's hard for us to grasp that and to be comfortable with the news that's just so good um, that, it's, that it's hard to believe. Um, there's, there are other reasons that I think as Christians we deviate away from the true gospel. Um, we'll look at one of those today, um, and it's this. I think that the true gospel makes us uncomfortable. I think there is a discomfort in knowing what is true. What is true is specifically about us. And so as we think about the good news, um, oftentimes we have to wade first through the bad news uh, to get to the good news. Um, and so today is going to be one of those days where we wade through what you might consider to be the bad news of the gospel. But I want to say this, that even in the bad news, there's good news. Okay, and so I'll say it this way. If, if you're here today and I were to ask you, um, how do you think you're going to make it into heaven? And if your answer back to me were anything like, I think that I'm a pretty good person, I do good things, um, I go to church, if any of your answers are rooted in the concept that you think you're pretty good, um, today will be bad news, but bad news, when it awakens us, to good news is good news. And so I want to say that on the front end, that if we come in today with a distorted view of the gospel, the discomfort of this bad news is actually good news when it awakens us to see the good news and to move towards the good news of Jesus. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 uh, in just a second. I want to uh, first give you just a quick announcement of something coming up that is good news for us as a church. Uh, we uh, are planning on um, an elder ordination service in November for two new elders. And uh, we came a few weeks ago and mentioned to you that Shane Belter and Jason Zeta were in the interview process and that the elders were in kind of the final stages of prayerfully considering them uh, to become new elders here at Solid Rock Church. And uh, we invited you to pray with us um, and to ask questions if you had them. And so now we're at a place where the elders are ready to affirm these two men um, as elders of the church. And so the way we do that is actually in a service that we call an ordination service. And that's where we like formally recognize individuals and the calling of God on their lives, uh, let you hear from them. And if you don't know them very well, you get to know them a little bit better. But I want to say this, this is, um, when you think about an ordination service, some people approach that kind of like a, um, just like a family situation, like, oh, okay, this is just for family and friends. Like, this is exciting for these two guys, but this is exciting for us as a church. So ordination service is actually a celebration as a church, and so I hope you'll mark your calendars. November the 12th, 
5 p.m., we'll come into this space. We'll have some time of worship and prayer, some time in the Word, and we will pray over these men and install them as elders here at Solid Rock Church. So we are excited about that. Uh, November the 12th, 5 p.m., please be here um, if you consider this your church home. All right. Um, thanks to all y'all who came and cleaned up yesterday. Oh, my gosh, didn't the campus look good coming in this morning? Did you notice all, like, everything was, like, trimmed up, flower beds, trees, um, for all of you who came, showed up, and worked hard yesterday, thank you, thank you, thank you. It looks great out there. All right, so we're going to start in verse 9. Um, if parts of this passage sound familiar, uh, back in the previous series in Malachi, um, we actually used part of this chapter to help us understand Malachi. And what we did is we were in Malachi, uh, walking through it verse by verse, and then in one particular Sunday, we, we just looked at one verse in Malachi. I uh, think it was chapter 2, somewhere around verse 17. And then we went to Romans 3. What we did is we looked at Romans 3, 23 through 26 um, as the good news of the gospel. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to back that up now and look at the section before that um, from verse like 9 through 23. And as we walk through this today, I'm going to just start in verse 9. Um, Paul is asking rhetorical questions in this chapter, so we'll look at what he's asked. But he begins verse 9 with a rhetorical question when he says, um, What then are the Jews better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I want to just take a minute I know that um, what's going on in the Middle East is like capturing our minds and our hearts right now. A lot of questions coming from you and probably towards you and towards us. And since it comes up in the text today, I think it'd be appropriate just to stop for a minute and think about what does that mean for us as Christians and what does that mean for us as a church? Um, one of the sad realities around world news is A, it's hard to know these days what's actually news, right? So you're out there trying to decipher from article to article to article to video to video to video what is actually true. And we don't even trust videos anymore uh, because of AI and the ability to edit and doctor. But I, I know that's a difficult thing in our world to even know what the news is. The second part of that is, is that it doesn't seem to matter um, really what, what country you're in or where you're at in the globe. When news erupts, quickly people begin moving into political tribes or philosophical camps and start debating and going at one another and you know as it relates to Israel we're, we're looking at a passage of scripture that is talking about Jews those who are um, from Israel those who bear the genetics of Abraham um, and then it talks about Greeks and there's some of that even happening in Christian camps where people are getting you know f fixated on prophecies and end times and and in that, potentially even overlooking the tragedy of what's happening. And so um, I would say this to us as a church. The prophecies of Scripture are meant to serve us as Christians and that we would read them and then be mindful of the things happening around us. And at the same time, nobody knows the hour and nobody knows the day. Okay? So I just want to kind of say that out loud. And as we think about tragedy that's happening right now in the Gaza Strip, um, the idea is not that we would get so distracted by prophecies that we would lose sight of the tragedy, that our hearts would fail to break 
for those who are suffering right now. And so our view on this is similar to how we view tragedy anywhere on the globe, whether you're looking at Eastern Europe and Ukraine or some of the tragedies happening uh, in Africa that aren't even making the news or South America, um, that our hearts would break for those who are suffering. And so I just want to kind of offer that up and maybe give us some guidance as a church. And, and I know there's a lot of internet information floating around about different, again, prophecies being fulfilled. And is this the end times? And, and, and what would be so sad would be for us to get so fascinated with that that we lose sight of suffering and we forget to hit our knees and pray for those in harm's way. Okay, so I want to offer that up to us as a church. Some of you I know are connected with people in harm's way, and I've been seeing those prayer requests coming in. And so we just want to join with you in praying for those who are suffering, even today while we sit here in freedom, uh, in comfort, with plenty. There are those in the world today, image bearers, who are being tragically murdered, killed, and whose lives are being destroyed, and that is the work of the enemy first and foremost. So I want to give that up. Now, moving back to the text, verse 9 does address this idea of what then are we Jews? Paul is writing as a Jew. He's Jewish, okay? So he's, he is a Jewish person. And he's saying, are we Jews any better off? Better off than, than who? Well, he says, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are together under sin. And so in the, in the Bible, um, you're going to see a distinction between Israelites or Jews or the Hebrews, those are the three names given those people, that nationality, that ethnicity, versus them and the rest of the world. And so when the other people are being described in the Bible, other people will be described as Gentiles. Um, in the New Testament, Greeks. Um, in the Old Testament, the nations. Okay, so there's a distinction in the scriptures between Israel, the children of Abraham, and the other nations. And so when you see Gentile or Greek or the nations, um, unless you are Jewish, that's talking about us, all the other nations, all the other ethnicities. And the Old Testament is clear that God chose, out of his providential wisdom, to work within the nation of Israel to bring about the birth of his son Jesus. And the New Testament begins with the birth of his son, Jesus. And what we get through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is this beautiful invitation for the nations to come. And so Paul will say, now there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now the children of Abraham are those who are of faith. Those who have believed the gospel are the children of Abraham or the nation of Israel. And so here in this passage, what's happened is in verse 1, Paul's actually having this conversation with the Romans. And the first rhetorical question he asks is, hey, do the Jews, because they are the main people in the Old Testament, do they have an advantage over all the rest of us? It's a question worth asking. If we're thinking about getting to heaven, if we're thinking about eternal life with God, we read the Bible and we go, well, I just wonder, do the Jews have an advantage over the rest of us? And then Paul answers that rhetorical question with, yeah, they actually do have an advantage because they have the oracles of God. They have this spoken, written word of God that should give them an advantage 
on knowing who God is, what he's like, and how to get to him. Okay, and then now in verse 9, just nine verses in, he asks the next question then as a follow-up, what then? If they have the advantage, what, what about it? Are they actually any better off? And the answer to this question is no. They have an advantage that should have helped them get to God quicker than the rest of us or easier than the rest of us. But then the second question is, did it actually help them to have that advantage? And what's the answer? No. No, it didn't actually help them. Why? And he answers it in this simple phrase, because both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Just because the nation of Israel was the nation God chose to work within to bring about the birth of his son does not mean that somehow they got out from underneath the curse of sin. So what happened in the garden between Adam and Eve and the serpent and God has impacted all of us. All ethnicities, all colors of skin, all socioeconomic race, classes, like we are all impacted by that. And then what God says in Genesis 3, as he describes the curse of sin, applies to everyone, including Israel. Like if you want a vivid description of what it looks like to be a sinner pursued by a loving, kind, holy God, read the story of the nation of Israel. They are rebellious. They are quick to turn. Like just because God's working through them didn't anyway protect them from this curse of sin. All humanity is under the curse of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, it fractured God's creation. It shattered the image of God that was imprinted on us as image bearers. What happened with Adam and Eve happened to us, and we were all born under the curse of sin. So that's why Israel didn't, that advantage didn't help them, because they are sinners just like us. Now out of here, what Paul is going to do in verses 10 through 18, he's going to quote a bunch of Old Testament passages. I'm just going to read it. They're like embedded in what we're about to read are over 10, either quotes or references to the Old Testament's description of how Israel is under sin too. Verse 10, as it is written, which is a reference to the oracles, the word of God, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now those were just Old Testament quotes. Paul's like, hey, they had the Old Testament. Was that an advantage? Yes. Did it help them get closer to God? No. Why? Because these Old Testament passages are describing the nation of Israel the same way all of humanity is described. 
This is the bad news. We are all under the curse of sin. And it doesn't matter if you're born Jewish or not. You're still under that curse. I'm going to read a couple of the passages that Paul's referring to here. Like I said, there's over 10 in here. I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to read a couple. One is Psalm 14, the first three verses. And here's what Psalm 14 says about the condition of the hearts of the people of God. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Remember how Paul ended, there's no fear of God within them? The psalmist says, hey, it is a foolish man who says this, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who would seek after God. And look at verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's an Old Testament passage. That was one of the songs that the Jews would sing in worship. Another passage that he's quoting comes from Isaiah 59. Verses 1 and 2 and 7 and 8 is, is quoted here in this Romans passage. Verse 1 of Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. That's, that's Bible talk for the problem doesn't rest with God. Right? The problem isn't that his arm's too short or his ears are too dull. The problem rests somewhere else. The problem resides somewhere else, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's that description. If you've ever seen like an evangelistic presentation on a napkin with two cliffs, that's the separation that's being described here. Verse 7 describes those who are on one side of the cliff. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to, sh to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Now, it would be really easy to take a passage like that and start going after um, people involved in the tragedy going on in the Middle East, and I think this verse is describing the hearts of those who are quick to shed blood. But the purpose is not meant to move us to a place of condemnation and judgment and self-righteousness, but for our hearts to break and go, that's what sin does. It corrupts. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. And the most tragic description of it all is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Over the last year, this has come up multiple times in sermons. But there is a goodness in the fear of the Lord. We talked about it um, last week and used the Chronicles of Narnia as an illustration. Like, you know, the same way the, the kiddos in Narnia were, like, should we be scared of Aslan, this lion who represents God? Should we be scared? And is he safe? And then remember that conversation? The beavers are like, no, he's not safe. You crazy? He's a lion. But he's good. And so the idea is, like, you imagine, like, little Lucy, one of the children, asking that question and trying to wrap her mind around it. It's like, 
I've heard somebody describe it this way. It's like she was, she was kind of in fear of, the, of the, this lion, and at the same time, she wanted to run to him and bury her face in his mane because he's good. That's a healthy fear of the Lord, to know who he is and what he is capable of, and then to hear the, the, the good, kind invitation to come to him and to run to him like a loving father. That's a healthy fear of the Lord. What's being described here is there is no fear of the Lord at all. No reverence in awe of his majesty and his glory and his power. Isaiah 53, which is not quoted here in this Romans passage, describes it this way. You'll be familiar with the wording. All we, this is verse 6, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, it's easy to move to a place of self-righteousness and judgment and look down upon people who are maybe making the news and lose sight of the fact that the Bible is describing all of us as under the curse of sin. That Isaiah passage is describing the nation of Israel, the Jews. We, we have all gone astray. Every one of us has gone astray. Now, I want to point out some of the descriptions that we read in the prophecy. You may have noticed some patterns. There was a whole lot of, hey, there's no one good, no one who seeks, no one. That's clear. All of humanity is underneath the curse of sin. But there were some other things that I noticed here that there was this connection uh, with what comes out of our mouths. Did you pick up on some of that wording? Did you hear that? I'll read a few of the phrases. Their, fro- their throat is, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, what I want to do is just kind of help us see the connection between what's going on in here and what comes out of here. The Bible is going to point to that as a significant kind of indicator. If you pay attention to what comes out of your mouth, you'll begin to notice what's really going on in your hearts. And oftentimes what's going on in our hearts gets filtered through our left brain, and so we edit it, we redact it, and we try to say it a certain way, but if you'll pay attention, your mouth will reveal what's going on inside of your heart. Just from Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, this is verse 43. Listen to what Jesus says about the connection between mouth and heart. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. He's comparing our our lives to trees. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes thick from a bramble bush. But here's the point. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Listen to this phrase. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, our words are not the only way that we commit sin. It's not what it's saying. And this is not the Bible telling you, hey, you need to quit cussing and start memorizing Bible verses. Okay, I think what's being described here is, hey, if you want to know what's going on in your heart, Pay attention to what comes out of your mouth. Your mouth will reveal what's truly in 
your heart. And I think that's why these Old Testament passages are describing the nation of Israel under the curse of sin. And here's one of the indications. We, we pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. God's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to what's coming out of your mouth. So I, I know clearly what's going on in your heart. What's interesting is this applies not just to sin, but it also applies to good things. Romans chapter 10, listen to this. This is how we respond to the gospel. Verse 8 of Romans 10 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That's this, the word of the gospel. It's near you. It's in, it's in your heart and it's in your mouth, or in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And this is what I want you to pay attention to, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and, that's an important and, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Okay. Now, if it just said, as long as you confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth, you will be saved, that would be a gospel rooted in works. Just say the right thing. Then our prayers become these superstitious chants. As long as I say the right thing, right, God will do something and I'm good. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. There's a connection between your mouth and your heart. It's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord, if you actually don't believe that he's Lord in your heart. Then look at what he says. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and that's actually what we'll come back to at the end of the sermon today, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If the word is in your heart, it will also be in your mouth. What's going on inside of you will come out. It'll come out sideways, right, married people? Case in point. How many times have you said something to the person that you claim to love the most that was harmful or hurtful? I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Actually, you did. Something was going on in your heart. You were angry or you were vengeful or you were something. You were trying to protect yourself or you were trying to get them back or something was going on in your heart. And it was reflected in the words that came out of your mouth. You didn't just trip and fall and accidentally say, you're such a jerk. Quit being like your mom. Like, that came from somewhere, right? Well, listen, that applies not only to sin, but even to this good confession that leads us to salvation. There is a connection with what goes on in your heart. It's good to tell the truth about what's going on in your heart. Even without redacting it or editing it through your logical brain to make it sound better or make you look better. It's good to tell the truth about what's going on inside of you. Paul and Jesus both are making the point that the condition and posture of the heart is revealed by listening to the words coming out of the mouth. This is true of sin, and this is true of your confession that leads to salvation. Okay, so you notice that pattern there. Deceitful lips and tongues and this throat that's, right? Like there's a connection here. But he also mentions other ways that sin shows up, right? Like here's a list of things he said. Sin also shows up in our lack of understanding, 
our lack of desire to seek God, our turning away or turning aside from God. It shows up in our inability to do the good that we know we ought to do. It shows up in how we use our tongues to deceive and curse and spread bitterness. It shows up in the shedding of blood and committing violence. It shows up when somebody's living in misery and ruin, and it shows up when there's a lack of healthy fear of the Lord. Okay, so all those things are evidence, indicators of what Paul said at the very beginning, that all, Jews and Greeks both, are under sin. Now surely something we just talked about landed on you. And if we stop today and go, okay, that's the gospel, good luck, we all walk out of here with some pretty bad news, don't we? Like, I don't know how to fix that. And it wouldn't even help if I were Jewish, like a true genetic child of Abraham. Like, that, that's not going to help me. I need help. I am desperate. And if this is the only news I receive today, it is bad news. But when this news awakens our soul to what we really need, that is good news, church. That is good news. Part of what we're going to do today is we're going to leave some of that seemingly bad news hanging in the air. And I hope that you will come back next Sunday with everything inside of me. I'm going to give you a little bit of good news in a minute, but come back next week, please, and hear the rest of the good news. We go back to the passage now in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is who we are accountable to, every human. The humble and the proud, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, the, the uber-religious and the atheist. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow, including mine, including the 24 elders in Revelation 24. There are none who are righteous not even one. That every tongue may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, doing good things, obeying the law of God, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And what the Bible is saying, even if you take the, the law of God, like the, the Bible and the, the rules of God, and you start trying with everything that you are to obey them, all it's going to do is begin to reveal more and more how incapable you are of obeying them. You're still under the law. I'm under the law. But none of us can reach a point of justification by trying to obey it.
There is no human who can justify himself or herself before a holy God. Now this takes us to Romans 23, verse, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, really a summary of all of this. Paul summarizes it this way in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So at this point, we don't even have to ask, well, what does he mean by all? <laughs> we know, right? We feel the weight of that. All have sinned, and, and this next phrase is important, fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? The chasm, the delta, the differential, the difference between where I am in my sinfulness and where God is in His holiness is unfathomable. Okay? It's not like we're peewee football players and he's in the NFL. Okay? It's not like on a scale of 1 to 10, we're a 1 and he's a 10. That still doesn't illustrate that differential. So like the drawing on the napkin, you can never get that gap big enough. You just can't get it big enough. It's not like I just got to get from here to there because I'm telling you, I can jump and I can make that one. Like I can jump from here and I can, I can hit Chris, I promise. I can jump a small gap, but the, the, ga the gap is huge. It's unfathomably big. I was trying to think of ways to illustrate this. I was thinking about, I don't know if any of you tried to look at the eclipse yesterday. Um, but if you did, without something shielding your eyes, sorry, that was a bad idea. You needed a mediator, right? Whether you cut a slit or poked a hole or used a welding hood, you need, if you went to look, you needed something to mediate between you and the sun because to behold it fully as it is would blind you. And you know how far the sun is away from the earth? I don't. It's a long ways. But imagine if we would launch you even closer to the sun. You're like, I don't know. A couple of miles away from the sun and you open your eyes. What's going to happen? You're not going to open your eyes because they've already been disintegrated by the power, the magnitude of this ball of energy, okay? So even that isn't a good enough illustration of what happens when sinful man beholds the glory of God. We aren't just falling short of obeying the rules of the classroom or the protocol at work. We have violated... The law of a God who is that holy. Jesus will illustrate it in Matthew 18 this way. He, he uses a parable to teach Peter about the, this gap in God's forgiveness. And he said, Peter, it's like this guy who owned, he owed 10,000 talents. One talent represented about 20 years of wages for the average worker in that day and time. So this guy owed 200,000 days worth of wages. That's almost unfathomable. 200,000. I don't know how many you're going to live, how many thousands of days you'll live, but I'm telling you, you won't live long enough to pay back that debt. It's unfathomable. And Jesus uses that to illustrate God's goodness and forgiveness. When this, this poor worker who owed this money desperately fell on his knees, recognizing the gap was too big, and asked for forgiveness. And then the one whom he owed 
forgave his debt completely. Okay, he didn't put him on a payment plan because that wasn't going to work, was it? Didn't, didn't do this in a, hey, an IOU. The only option was either this man suffer for what he owed or the, the debt be wiped clean. Okay, that's meant to illustrate the debt we owe, the, the chasm, the differential, the, the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. And so we have not just sinned in the sense that we didn't keep up our behavior in the classroom. We have fallen short of his glory. And then verse 24 is the good news. And, and we are justified. So when you hear justified, um, some people will say this, it's justified I had never sinned, which is kind of an elementary way to think about it, but it works to get the conversation started justified when i'm rendered justified it's not like we use that word in english where you try to justify your actions so god's not coming behind you making excuses for you that's not that version of justified this is the kind of justified that would you would find like in the court of law we're at the end of the the court session the judge slams the gavel down and makes a declaration and either you're guilty or you're innocent Justified means that the gavel comes down and God finds you innocent now. What? I just got on board for how not innocent I am. Right? I just am starting to grasp just how short I am falling of his glory. And yet, the gospel tells me that I am justified. Debt is wiped clean by his grace as a what? A gift. In the same way that wealthy landowner gave debt forgiveness to that commoner as a gift. God has justified you. God has justified me. Justified, never sinned. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news, and then I'm going to leave all the bad news kind of lingering. Romans 10, once again, says this. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The good news of the gospel is that all who believe are justified by his grace as a gift. And church, that is good news. If you were starting to lean in on the bad news, that's good news. Now, if you're still sitting there trying to convince yourself or others that, yeah, I'm just not that bad, Pastor. Like, I get it when you use those Bible verses to describe people in the Middle East or terrorists. and Yeah, but I'm just not that bad. I'm kind of a good guy. That sentiment reflects the heart attitude of Israel in this passage. I understand why the Gentiles need something, but come on. We're your chosen people. And Paul would say to us all, hey, we're all under that curse of sin. Here's the good news. 
God will justify you. God will justify you. What do I have to do? Do I need to convince him of that? Nope. Do I need to get on a payment plan? No. Do I need to become a community group leader and start giving money to the church? No. Is with your mouth that you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be justified. Forgiven. Completely. Rendered righteous. That's good news. Next week, we're going to focus on that as we come back together. I want to land with a few questions for reflection today. I want you to think about this, if you're willing. Um, first question is this. How does acknowledging your own sinfulness... Now, when I use sinfulness, I don't mean individual sins, though that could be applied. I mean the condition of our heart as sinners. Like, how does acknowledging your own sinfulness lead you to a deeper appreciation for God's grace and mercy. As you begin to acknowledge the condition of your heart, how does that help you see His? Specifically in His kindness and mercy. And if you are the good old boy trying to earn your way into heaven, in what ways have you attempted to earn righteousness or approval from God through your good deeds. I know that's how the rest of the world demands that you earn respect and favor, but that's not what God demands. I know that many of your parents, your dads demanded that of you. Do enough good things and you'll finally have my approval, and you tried. And it, and it seemed like you could never quite get there. That's not who God is. Are you taking, you taking that and applying it to God? What ways are you attempting to earn his righteousness or approval through your good deeds? Here's the third question. How does the concept of being justified freely by God's grace impact your view of his character? How does that help reconcile who he actually is? What does that tell you about his character? that he would justify you freely as a, as a gift. Messages like today can potentially kind of drive us into this mindset of I'm worthless, I am a sinner, and I'm just going to spend the rest of my life like Eeyore. Why even try? So let me just ask you this. Do you struggle to live in the tension between being aware of your own sin while also embracing and living in the freedom of God's justification and His grace. We, we get uncomfortable in that tension, don't we? Do you struggle to live in that tension between being aware of your own sin and also embracing and living in the freedom that God's justification and grace provide? And then I would ask you this, if you're sitting here today and you go, I'm a Christian, I'm all in, I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart, Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. My question to you is not, when did you believe the gospel for the first time, but this question, how does the gospel lead you to God's grace on a daily basis? Are you still believing the gospel when you wake up on Monday morning? Are you still believing the gospel when, when you come home from work irritated and upset and your words come out sideways? When you fall short, when you do that thing that's just so embarrassing you hope nobody finds out. 
when you have those thoughts that are just so shameful, you just like don't hope nobody ever sees through you to know what those thoughts are. How do you live in the grace of the gospel on a daily basis? How do you believe it tomorrow? How do you believe it right now? Are you living in the forgiveness of God like right now? Or are you condemning yourself? Listen, here's what you don't need. You don't need to try harder next time. You don't need just one more chance. You don't need just a few more resources. If I just, God would just show me the right verse to memorize, then I'd fix the sin problem. Obviously, that didn't help the Jews. What you and I need is something better than the law. We need something more powerful than the law that can actually render us as righteous so we can stand before a holy king. That's the invitation of God for you today. And so if that's you and you want to move towards that, our prayer partners will be at the front. We'd love to talk with you about where you are in your relationship with God, pray over you, pray with you. Um, we always have elders on site, so you can grab an elder out in the commons area, and they'll be got the guys wearing the, the lanyards. Um, I'm going to give you space now to respond to God and however he's speaking to you, because at the end of the day, the gospel is an invitation, but you have to receive it. That's, that's for you. So I'm going to pray for that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for um, the good news of the gospel, and even in, God, our time reading about our sinfulness and how there is no one who does good, there is no one who seeks you. God, none of us can earn our way into heaven. While on one hand, that is really bad news, Father, that truth, that reality leads us to the good news of the gospel. Thank you, God, for providing a better way through Jesus. And if there's anybody here today who has not taken that step of faith to be forgiven of sins, to be reconciled and justified, God, I pray that would happen even as we get ready to sing. Holy Spirit, would you move through our hearts today? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.